And Father, we pray as always Your blessing on Your Word. We ask that Your Word would come upon us tonight like the rain and the snow which waters the earth and causes it to bear and, and to sprout and to be seed for the sower, bread for the eater. And Father, we know that Your Word does not come back to You empty without accomplishing the matter for which You sent it. We pray that You'd send forth Your Word tonight. Your written Word, the glorious Word that we have before us, but spoke to us by the very Spirit of Christ. And Jesus, we ask that tonight Your Spirit would guide us through the thoughts that went into these words in the first place. We pray for application. We pray for understanding. And we ask that You would turn our hearts to be, once again, more aligned with Yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. Back in Isaiah 53, we climbed the summit. In my opinion, the very pinnacle of prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures. There are a couple of summits, really. Perhaps you've considered this or heard something like this before, but the first summit is Isaiah 53. And that summit is what I would call the Gospel according to Isaiah. That summit is comparable to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. The mountain on which Abraham... Uh, began to, attempted to, started to sacrifice his son Isaac, but his hand was stayed. That mountain, Mount Moriah, is the very first of the pinnacles. There's another pinnacle, there's another summit. We're going to see it, we'll come to it one way or another by the end of this summer. Uh, For here, we'll come to it in the book of Isaiah, where he talks about yet another mountain, another summit. We could compare that to Mount Zion, the summit of the kingdom. Sometimes people have missed what God was going to do in between the summits. Because if you stand back and you look from one mountain to another, sometimes all you can see is the peaks of the two mountains. You see the peak of Mount Moriah, the sacrifice. You see the peak of Mount Zion. But what's there in between? And it's only until you come around and look in the middle that you see this valley. I'd call that the church age. And that's the age that we're in. And so the summit of Christ's sacrifice is behind us at Calvary. The summit of the coming kingdom, the glorious kingdom of God represented by Mount Zion, that's before us. And we will learn more about this. In fact, tonight we come out of the midsection here of the last part of of Isaiah. Three parts, remember, we come out of part two. And beginning next week we'll head on into the third and final section of the prophecy of Isaiah. And in that section, we begin to climb another summit, that summit of the kingdom. And we'll get to that. But I started with this to say that when we came down from the summit of Isaiah 53, do you remember what came next? It's kind of a simple question. What comes after 53? 54. The invitation. There were two invitations given, Isaiah 54. The inclusive No, I'm sorry, the exclusive invitation. The exclusive invitation to Israel only. And if you read Isaiah 54, it is an invitation to God's people, Israel. But you get to Isaiah 55, and it's an inclusive invitation to all people. Everyone, come and drink of the water which I give you. It's free. No charge. It's gratis. Grace. And so Isaiah 55, we get the inclusive invitation. So 53, the summit. 54, the exclusive invitation. 55, the inclusive 
invitation. And here on the valley floor now of Isaiah 56 and 57, the Lord gets intensely practical with all those who have received the invitation. We accept it, Lord. We look at this, we hear this invitation that has been opened up to us, to us Gentiles. Now, if you're of Jewish background, wonderful, you got the invitation before we did. But we're all now invited. We're all called. And the Lord takes us the next step in these couple of chapters in practical understanding of what it means to have walked, to receive that invitation and now to walk in it in the valley between the summits. Now, I love the prophetic word. You know that. We spend a lot of time in it. We pay close attention to the word of prophecy in Scripture. Nearly a third of all the Bible is prophecy. And we look at those things and we think about them. We pay close attention to them. Peter says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. 2 Peter 1.19 We pay attention to the prophecies until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But listen, Peter's calling us in his letter, to pay attention to the effect this word has in the dark place of the world until Jesus comes. You understand what I'm saying here? Let me be specific. Bible prophecy is more than bait to draw an unbelieving heart. Now it does. It does. I've said before, if I was going to start any non-believer in a Bible study, I would start in the book of Revelation because it is so mind-boggling, so wonderful, so glorious. It does lure the heart. It is attractive. And people are attracted to prophecy. They want to know what's coming. What is future? What does the future hold for me, my life, for this country, for the world we're living in? But Bible prophecy is more than bait. Secondly, it is more than a religious thrill ride for our amusement. You know, we don't just strap in. Now, sometimes, it, it, hey, it is thrilling, right? Who doesn't love to get into Bible prophecy and just go, wow, Lord, that's amazing. You're marvelous. It's exciting. It is thrilling. But that's not, that's not the purpose. Not the only purpose. It's not bait. It's not a thrill ride. And it's not limited to comforting us with our future hope. Now Paul did write, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, after talking about the rapture of the church, he said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so Bible prophecy is the stuff of comfort. And it is thrilling. And it is a lure. It is alluring. But all of those things must be balanced with this. And please hear me, brothers and sisters, if we get off base with this, we get into the nuttiness that sometimes people get into when it comes to prophecy. Bible prophecy is immediately practical for day-to-day living. We study the prophetic word not just to look ahead, not to get a buzz, not to draw someone in, not to feel comforted. Those things are important. But we study the prophetic word so that we might know how to live righteously now. God's word of prophecy does that to the human heart. It does that to our minds. draws us into desiring to live as righteous people. It's more than just discovering the little horn of Daniel, you know, or the beast of Revelation. It's far more than investigating the lurking Antichrist. Who is he? Where is he? What will he come out of? And that's all interesting. But our immediate and our greatest concern as followers of Jesus is to be focused on Jesus Christ right now. 
We're not waiting for Antichrist coming. We're waiting for Jesus Christ coming. We're not concerned with the things of Antichrist. We're concerned with the things of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our focus. And that's the practicality of prophecy. I have found in my own life it affected, it has affected me more in the last decade than I think I've ever been affected or impacted by Bible study. All the focus, all the interest, all the reading and studying that I've done in prophecy has impacted me immediately and spiritually. It affects the way I view things. It affects the things that I will tolerate or not tolerate. It affects my worldview. It affects my behavior each and every day when I'm focused on it. When I'm not in the prophetic word, it's funny, I tend to slip back and become kind of like old Rick. You wouldn't like old Rick. I try to keep him out of here as much as I can. The practicality. That's my wife. The practicality of prophecy is that it impacts your life here and now. And that's what John meant in 1 John 3, verse 2, when he said, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we'll see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. The blessed hope. The desire for the coming of Christ. The loving His appearing. Fixed on Him. That changes me. It purifies me. Now. It alters my life and my behavior. Now. So we come down from the summit of the prophecy of Calvary. We come into the church age. And before us looms the summit of Mount Zion. And the coming of the Lord our King. And the great kingdom looming before us. It alters our lives. That's where we're headed. And we stay on the path. When we consider this, God uses Bible prophecy to call us to what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. I love, it was just a couple weeks back that Spencer asked, can you give me a clear definition of righteousness? Little did you know, little did I know that we were going to talk about it tonight. That this is exactly where the Lord was leading us. It was good timing that the question be asked. Because we can't just toss righteousness out as a religious phrase. Oh yeah, we need to be righteous and holy and all that good stuff. You know, what's for dinner? We need to stay focused and understanding. What does this mean? To be righteous, to be truly right with God. Isaiah 56 verse 1 reads, Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice. Now, thus says the Lord is now referring back to everything we've already seen. Okay, thus says the Lord. After we saw that pinnacle of prophecy, Isaiah 53. After we heard the exclusive invitation, Isaiah 54. After we heard our inclusive invitation, Isaiah 55. Now God says, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness. You see, righteousness is a thing you do. It's not who you are, it's what you do. You know, you're a righteous dude because you do righteousness. Alright? For my salvation, watch this, is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. What's that? It's the prophetic word. God is saying prophetically, my salvation is coming. To Israel in the context, probably my salvation to draw you out of Babylon is imminent. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to save you from your situation. My salvation in the short term is about to come. My righteousness is about to be revealed. That's prophecy. I'm telling you ahead, it's about to happen. And that is the basis God uses for saying, preserve justice and do righteousness. Why, Lord? Because I'm about to do this. I'm about to come. 
This is a great principle of practical righteousness. I'll give you uh, seven of them, I think, tonight. Seven principles of practical righteousness. And the first one is a clearer perspective. Practical righteousness brings me a clearer perspective. What does that mean? It means live today in light of tomorrow. Live today in light of tomorrow. Keep your eyes focused on tomorrow, but live today in light of what's coming. Do righteousness. Preserve justice. Do righteousness. That is the things that are right with God. And we do righteousness in anticipation of His coming. Looking to the kingdom. Marching to Zion. That's why we do righteousness. We see what's coming. Don't don't say, Lord, you know what? Lord, I'll get around to tithing just as soon as you bless my finances. How about instead, Lord, I'm just going to stick my neck out and start tithing, believing you for your promises. Don't say, Father, I'll get around to righteousness when I see your salvation. No, no. Walk righteously because I'm telling you my salvation is coming. That's righteousness. And walk with a clearer perspective because I see where I'm headed. My eyes are wide open. Bible prophecy does that to us. That's why we need to remain attentive to the prophetic word. Verse 2, he goes on and says, How blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man who takes hold of it, which tells me that righteousness is a generational thing. It's something that we pass along. It's something we pray along. Now, moms and dads, that doesn't mean that your children are going to behave righteously. <laughs> I'm just going to hold my tongue right there because i got all kinds of examples. Practical, personal examples. It doesn't mean that because you're righteous and you pray for righteousness that your kids will be. But they have a far better chance. And that is, there is nothing greater that we can pass along to our children but a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's A number one. Cheryl and I have prayed that from birth with every one of our kids, from our Anna Marie, Naomi, and David in the last three years. From the moment we knew they were coming home, we began praying, Lord, that they would know Jesus. I really could care less about anything else. I don't really care. They go to college, hey, that'd be great. I'd love for them to go to college. I graduated college. I think college is a good thing. Wonderful, far out. Big deal. I really would rather they know Jesus. I want them each to have a, a, a good spouse. And we think perhaps we've found one for Hannah. We're not sure. We're keeping an eye on this boy. But you know what? More than that, hey, that's wonderful. They could be set up for life. It looks like a really healthy relationship, but I'd much rather she knows Jesus. If she can know Jesus better in the context of that relationship, fantastic. It's knowing Jesus. It's passing this thing along. Not just my righteousness, but that of my children. And notice he says, how blessed is the man who does this, son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. (laughs) For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. You know what an everlasting name is? It's generations. That's wonderful. He's telling the eunuch who has no seed that I'm going to give you seed. 
I'm going to cause you to reproduce. I'm going to give you a name that continues on. I'm going to do for you what what can't be done for you. If you come into my house, if you involve yourself with the things that are of me. Now in verse 3, notice he says to the foreigner and the eunuch, don't say that. Don't say these things. Don't don't say, foreigner, that the Lord's going to separate me. Don't say, eunuch, that I'm just a dry, dry tree. Why not, Lord? Because it isn't true. I'm not going to separate you, outsiders who have come in. I don't do that. I'm not going to cut you off and leave you standing dry and lifeless, those eunuchs who come to be with the Lord. The foreigner will not be separated. The eunuch will not be fruitless, although by all legal accounts they should be. The foreigner should be separated. And the eunuch should be fruitless and cut off. What are you talking about, Rick? Neither the foreigner nor the eunuch was welcome in the congregation of Israel. And the law declares that. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No one who is emasculated or has had his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. It's right there in Scripture. I know some of you breathed a sigh of relief when we got past Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Well, I just came right back to it. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That is, foreigners. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. No foreigners and no eunuchs. Listen to this. The word foreigner here in Isaiah 56 is Bene Nikar. Bene Nikar. Now, some of you Bible students, you know what Bene means? Anyone know what Bene, Ben? Son. Son of. Son of Nikar. What is Nikar? Son of the stranger. No son of the stranger has any place. That's, that's what the name foreigner is. Son of a stranger. In other words, an outsider by birth. You have not been born into the people of Israel. You've not been born as a Jew. Therefore, you're an outsider and... As a foreigner, according to the law, you're not welcome in. But now God is saying something different. Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to me say, the Lord will separate me from his people. Don't say that. Hmm. So an outsider by birth. The word eunuch there is sarik. Sarik in the Hebrew is a chamberlain or an official of another nation. And one of the things that was often practiced in the nations at the time, when you were an official serving the king, you would become a eunuch. They would literally castrate you so that you would be no threat to the royal harem. You wouldn't be, you know, enjoying a little pleasure on the side when you were doing their job. And they thought that the castration would stop that. It didn't, but they thought it would. So that's what a sarik is. Bene Nikar, an outsider by birth, Sarik, castrated in the servants of a service of a Gentile nation, that is, an outsider by impotence. One is an outsider by birth, the other one is an outsider because he's impotent, because he cannot produce. But such is the grace of God that even before Jesus came, he offered hope to the impotent outsiders from Israel. Do you realize that in the book of Isaiah, 16 times God sends out invitations to Gentiles? 16 times through the prophet, He invites the Gentiles to come in and to be a part. But Lord, Your law says to separate. That's because God was trying to teach the Jewish people how serious it was to be righteous. 
And they alone were receiving the law of God, not the rest of the world. And so the rest of the world would be tumbling downhill in their sin. Israel called to the light. You know, called to the law. The perfect law. So separate yourselves to me and to this law. And so they did. But then God says, after having trained them and taught them that, now He says to the foreigner, now He says to the eunuch, come on. Because it's not just Israel that I seek to save. And so He sends out invitation after invitation after invitation. And by the way, isn't it marvelous that the Holy Spirit sent Philip to meet a foreign eunuch reading Isaiah 53 that the man might be saved? Do you think that's coincidental that here in Isaiah 56 we we hear a, a word for a foreigner and a eunuch after Isaiah 53 and the foreigner eunuch was reading... I, it's just I love that stuff. We run into this kind of thing. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 is fulfilled prophecy. And the prophecy is spoken right here in Isaiah 56. Fulfilled in Acts chapter 8. Bottom line, neither physicality nor nationality nor deformity matters for anyone who desires the Lord. If you desire the Lord, no matter who you are, no matter what you've come from, if you desire to be with the Lord, your name in God's house is as good as anyone's name in God's house. In fact, a step beyond that in the book of Revelation, we're told we'll be given a new name. So no one's going to be able to track the old one. <laughs> you have a new name in the household of the Lord. Marvelous. By the way, speaking of a name, verse 5 says, let me read it again, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, that is literally a hand, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Verse 5 is written in Hebrew on the outside of one of the most important buildings in all of Jerusalem today. A memorial and a name. A Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial. Yad Vashem is the name of it in Israel. And it says that. It's written on the outside wall right before you go into uh, one of the marvelous displays there. You look out on the wall and there it is in Hebrew. And, and of course our guide had to point it out because you know Spencer doesn't read Hebrew and so he couldn't share that with us. <laughs> A Yad Vashem. And it is Isaiah chapter 56 verse 5 that is written right out there on that wall. Now I mention that because in the memorial, in the Holocaust memorial there in Jerusalem, there is an avenue. It's called the Avenue or the Garden of the Righteous. And you can walk down this avenue. And and what the the Jewish people have done, uh, the Israelis, is they've planted trees on either side of this avenue. You walk down, they're carob trees. And these carob trees, each one is planted for some righteous Gentile who risked or gave his life to save the Jews, save Jewish people during the Holocaust. One of those trees there is a tree for Oscar Schindler. And uh, it's kind of funny because our guide told us that he was leading, and I'm going to get this wrong, so you guys might need to help me with this, but he was leading a group through there, and everybody was, uh, I guess everybody kept going up to this, this tree, this carob tree that was Oscar Schindler's tree, and picking leaves and stuff off of it to take home. I got a leaf from the tree of Oscar Schindler. You know, obviously missing why they're in the Holy Land, but be that as it may, they're doing this. And so the uh, a gardener who worked there took Oscar Schindler's sign and moved it four or five feet away onto another tree. It's not the right tree. <laughs> and then everybody was climbing over and going to that tree, you know, until they realized that's not Oscar's, that's his trees over here. Anyway, so these carob trees line the avenue of the righteous. 
And along that avenue and down that path, there's a wall that has names inscribed in it. Dozens of names, hundreds of names of people who have stood up for Israel. People who, as Isaiah will say in a few chapters, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And so they are called the righteous among the nations. And their names are inscribed, or there are trees there. But the carob trees, why were carob trees chosen? I'm going somewhere with this. Carob trees are chosen because they require years before they can bear fruit. There's an old rabbinical saying that it takes a carob tree 70 years before it will bear fruit, which isn't true. Minimum of three or four years, but more typically seven to ten years before a carob tree that is planted will start to bear fruit. And in fact, the drier the climate, and Israel is a dry climate, the longer it takes for a carob tree to bear fruit. Well, why would they pick carob trees if it takes a long time to bear fruit? Because they recognize that the fruit of righteousness must be seeded over time. That a righteous act now may not even be recognized, may not even really truly bear fruit until later. And in fact, from the Jewish perspective, walking down the avenue of the righteous, you're looking at carob trees, these righteous among the nations who save Jews, who will bear fruit, and only will it be understood what that person did in future generations. And there's another principle here that I think about. And the Lord says, I want you to do righteousness, to preserve, to preserve justice. Another principle of practical righteousness. Secondly, a continual planting. You keep planting. You keep planting. You keep planting. And you may not see the results. That's alright. Keep planting. You may die before you ever see the result, mom or dad, that you've planted into the heart of a child. You may not see. Jake's not here right now. He's with our junior hires. But I'll tell you what. Jake will not see the truest fruit of the youth ministry that he's doing. They say, you know how you tell a successful youth pastor? By where the kids are ten years later. A continual planting. And, And to do righteousness, to practice righteousness, means we do righteous things recognizing we may not see immediate fruit. We may not realize because the fruit of righteousness is faithfully seeded over time. James puts it this way. He says in James 5.7, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. And so we plant the seeds. Paul says, I planted, you know, uh, Apollos watered, or Apollos planted, I watered, and God brings the growth. So we just keep planting. We just keep doing righteous acts. Not looking for an immediate reward, not looking for an immediate carob tree to pop up and, and make the little fruit that they can make into that nasty candy that's supposed to be instead of chocolate, but doesn't work for me. <laughs> Verse 6. Did I tell you my mom did that to me one Easter? <laughs> you know, little chocolate footballs, little Hershey footballs. We would get there those in our in our little baskets every Easter. And one year my mom decided to go healthy. I think she was right around Cheryl's age. I don't know if there's a connection with what you're doing right now. Sure. And she put carob, carob eggs. Oh, they were wrapped in beautiful little, you know, paper, shiny. They looked tasty. And I bit into the first one. I'm like, what is this? This belongs in the avenue of the righteous, not in my Easter basket. Verse 6. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord... Watch what they do. To minister to Him. 
and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant. Man, verse 6 right there. You can just sit there and think about righteousness. What does righteousness look about? Well, it's, it's joining yourself to the Lord. It's ministering to Him. I've told you before, I, I love this church and I love pastoring here, but I don't minister to you. I minister to the Lord. And I minister as the Lord tells me to minister. And that, if that happens to include you, well, you're blessed. Or I'm blessed. But our ministry is first and foremost to Him. And if we're ministering to Him, guess what? He knows who needs blessing. He knows who needs ministry. He knows who needs service. So you keep your eyes on Him. You love the name of the Lord. You're His servants. Keep from profaning the Sabbath. And hold fast my covenant. Verse 7 continues, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. The dispersed of Israel... And the others, that is the outsiders, the foreigners, the eunuchs, those who are not normally or shouldn't have been legally included, now God's saying, I'm going to gather Israel and the outsiders together. I'm pulling them together as one people, just as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. Foreigners, eunuchs, outsiders, and Jewish people, God's intention is to bring them together. To draw them together in one glorious kingdom. But before this could happen, and before the coming of Christ, what he's talking about here is something that people in Isaiah's day needed to understand. Gentiles pre-cross needed to get. And that was that there is only one way to truly be joined to the Lord. The only hope for a non-Jew before Jesus came was to be joined to the Lord as a proselyte with Israel. That is a convert. To convert to Judaism. And there were certain things that, because they were not Jewish, there were certain things they didn't have to do, not required of them, but as proselytes, there were certain things that were required of them. For example... Keeping the Sabbath. That was huge. You want to be a proselyte Jew? Got to keep the Sabbath. And other examples are in here as well. To come to my holy mountain, to bring their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, and they'll be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. In Acts chapter 8, verse 27, notice it tells us that that Ethiopian eunuch, that foreign eunuch, that outsider, was returning from doing what? Anybody remember what he was doing? Why, where he was headed on the road? He had been worshiping in Jerusalem. He's on his way back from doing exactly what God had opened the door for Gentiles to do. And that was to be joined to the Lord and to come up to Jerusalem and to worship and to be included in the commonwealth of Israel even though they themselves were not Jews. That's what the eunuch was up to. The Gentile had gone to temple. Well, how would he have done that? Where would he have done that? He would have gone to worship in the court of the Gentiles, right? No wonder Jesus was so incensed when He walked into the temple and saw what was going on in the court of the Gentiles. 
Those outsiders, those eunuchs, those foreigners had been drawn in. They had a place that was special before the Lord. A place they could come and take part and be somewhat involved as converts to the Jewish people who are the light or were the light, supposed to be the light of the nations. And Jesus entered the temple, Mark 11.15, and He began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple. Listen, it wasn't the buying and selling that was such a bad thing, it was the ripping off that was taking place. Money changers, well, you have to use temple money that has been, you know, it's kosher. So you got to give us your money, we'll give you temple money, but it wasn't an even exchange. You always lost money in the process. Oh, you brought doves with you for sacrifice, which is what the poor people would bring. Yeah, I'm sorry, your doves are not good enough. We've inspected them. You've got to buy our doves. And they got ripped off. And the Levites there in the court of the Gentiles were just ripping people off right and left. They had their stands all set up in the buying and the selling. And you can imagine, Middle East buying and selling going on in the temple. And Jesus was infuriated. It says He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And He began to teach them And to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus quoted Isaiah 56, verse 7. Why does He choose... And you've got to think about the purposefulness of Jesus. Why did He choose that particular verse and quote, My house will be called a house of prayer? Because of what was going on? Yes. But also because of where it was going on in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus knew Isaiah 56 was the open invitation to the Gentile. Come and be a part of My people. Then He looks around and He sees His people ripping off the Gentiles and He says, no way. No way I'm going to let this happen. And He drives them out. The foreigners and the Gentiles were called to this house of prayer. My Father's house of prayer for all. And that's the key word. A house of prayer for all the peoples. Not just for the elite. Some groups um, come along and religious practitioners and they still try to overcharge people today. They still try to overcharge the newcomer or the outsider who doesn't know any better. The Sabbath is a good example of that, of overcharging. You see, prior to the church age, keeping the Sabbath, and as I said before, and observing certain aspects of the law, they were required, they were the only way to practice righteousness for Jew and Gentile alike. And so Gentile converts were required to keep Shabbat before Jesus came. Some some groups, and I'll give an example, Seventh-day Adventists are one. Seventh-day Adventists believe that you worship on Saturday, you keep Sabbath on Saturday, you have to keep Sabbath on Saturday. And they take a very literal and legalistic view of that, saying that Sabbath is required for salvation. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you don't get saved. So you non-Sabbath Sunday Christians, you're on the outside. You don't get saved. And some well-meaning person comes to a Seventh-day Adventist church and says, hey, I'd like, to, I'd like to know more about Jesus. Well, great, we'll see you Saturday. But make sure you're here Saturday. What are they doing? They're overcharging. They're money changers. They're changing the truth of the gospel of grace for a gospel that is one of law and legalism and illegitimacy. Well, well Rick, why don't we practice the Sabbath today? And some will make the argument, it's a a fair discussion at least, that the Sabbath was given before the law. 
You know, we see it in the example of creation. We see God indicating that Sabbath was a good thing. Sabbath is a good thing. Who's going to argue with rest? Why don't we keep it as Christians today? And I'll tell you why. Keep your finger in Isaiah 56 and turn over to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Now let's go back further. It's so good. Let's just start with Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. No, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, talking about Jesus, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Which should put to rest any questions about whether or not Jesus is God. Verse 10, And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, and by the way, Sunday is going to be a baptism Sunday. I just sent out an email this afternoon, so you should get that. Baptism Sunday on Sunday. If you haven't been baptized, come prepared to be baptized. We'll go down to the pond after second service and we'll baptize anyone who wants to be baptized, and I'm excited about that. Having been buried with Him in baptism... Okay, i gotta, I got to mention this. So baptism means to submerge. So when Paul says, having been buried with Him in baptism, it is a literal statement that baptism is a picture of burial. Submersion. Not sprinkling. How many dead people have you seen sprinkled at a funeral and then everybody walks away while the, you know, the corpse just kind of lays there? It's not what... Okay, so he's very specific. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with Him. Through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, here's where we're going. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having, watched this, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What is it that He's talking about? The law. The law got nailed to the cross. Listen, the perfect law, perfectly kept by Jesus, and even as Jesus is nailed to the cross, so the law gets nailed to the cross as well. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Therefore, Paul said, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Things which, verse 18, one more thing, he says, let no one keep defrauding you like the money changers of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels and taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And that is the head, that is Jesus. So Jesus replaces Sabbath. Because Jesus is Sabbath. Jesus is my rest. Is it a good idea to take one day in seven and rest? Absolutely. To be at peace with the Lord? I highly recommend Sundays you come worship and then you take the day and be with the Lord and your family. It's a great day for doing that. But not legalistically. Not as a law. 
We don't meet on Sundays because the New Testament tells us we have to meet on Sundays. You won't find it. Now you'll find examples of the first century church, I believe, meeting on Sundays. But you're not going to find anywhere where Paul or one of the other apostles says, you have to meet on Sunday. It is the new Sabbath. Don't break it. It's not there. You won't find it. Why don't we practice the Sabbath day because it has been nailed to the cross and Jesus now is our Shabbat. And that's why the church of the first century began observing voluntarily the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. John chapter 20 verse 1 tells us on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Glorious day, resurrection, the first real Sunday in my opinion, the first Sunday that mattered. And so the first century church, because of that, because Jesus resurrected on Sunday, said, let's meet every Sunday. But you really believe that? Now, there are a lot of Christians who want to make the argument that, yeah, that's, that's flimsy. Well, let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And we're coming up to another practical principle, so hold on. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2 says, On the first day of every week, Paul writes, Each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Someone might say, well, that's still flimsy. But Paul says, the indication is, you're coming together every first day of the week anyway. That's a good day to bring your offerings. Get it all set aside. So when I come, it's ready to go. But you might say, I need more. Okay, the clearest evidence of the first day of the week as the traditional day of larger church fellowship and worship is in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So they stayed an entire week. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Well, that could be a coincidence. Okay, I'll give you that because it's not a law. If you want to meet on a Monday evening, that's fine. If you'd rather meet Friday night, go ahead. But I think there's something to meeting on Sundays. I think there's something valuable to gathering as a fellowship, the larger fellowship, the church of believers, on Sundays. Some say Constantine is the one who began the Sunday tradition. That's one of the things that's thrown out there. He began it after 312 A.D. He said, this is the day when the church must meet. Must meet. But the problem is, a hundred years before that, in the writings of Tertullian, <laughs> the church was already observing the first day of the week. Tertullian said that's when Christians met. So Constantine didn't start it. Tertullian didn't start it. He just said it was already going on. And remember, you Bible students, what was John doing when he received the revelation? Do you remember what he was doing? Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. When? On the Lord's day. The Bible tells us I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, some have made this case. They said, well, the Lord's day was probably or actually the day of the Lord. In fact, we talked about this back in 2005 when we went through the book of Revelation. We talked about that theory, that possibility that John was actually transported in vision to see the tribulation. And that what he's writing there was that he was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. He was already having a vision of the tribulation before he heard the voice of Jesus calling out like a trumpet. Well, that gets things kind of out of whack. That doesn't really fit the timeline of Revelation. That he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and then Jesus appeared to him and then Jesus revealed to him 
the rapture of the church, the church in heaven, the tribulation, okay, the millennial kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, new Jerusalem on out. Okay, I just gave you the entire outline of Revelation, by the way. But maybe that's what was going on. The Lord's day means the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, Jacob's trouble. Well, I thought that might be a possibility when we studied through it back then. I've since learned something, a little additional piece of important information I want to throw out to you. The word Lord's in the Greek, when you read the Lord's day, Lord's is kuriakos. Kuriakos in the Greek. And it is not, listen, it's not in the possessive tense. If it was in the possessive tense, it would be the day of the Lord, the day belonging to the Lord. It's in the adjective tense. It's an adjective. The Lord's Day. And so the way it's written in the Greek is descriptive, not possessive. In the same way we call July 4th Independence Day. We just celebrated Independence Day, right? Last Wednesday? But that wasn't Independence Day. Independence Day was July 4th, 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence and... You know, of course, then our independence was hard fought and all that. But so last Wednesday was not Independence Day, but we call it Independence Day because that's how we describe it. Same thing with the Lord's Day. It's not the day of the Lord, but it's the Lord's Day. I think John was in the Spirit on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, that the Lord's Day was a common thing. Paul uses it, John uses it as a phrase to describe the first day of the week that they just called the Lord's Day. And why was John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? He went to church. He was alone on Patmos. Exiled and lonely, missing, thinking about, praying for the church of believers who he knew at that moment were also worshiping God. Hence, John was in the Spirit. Because... When you're in the Spirit, whether you're alone or with other believers, when you're in the Spirit, guess what? You're with other believers. You can be absolutely by yourself, but if you are in the Spirit, you're with the body of Christ. And so John is there. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he knew the church was meeting without him elsewhere. And so he's praying and thinking about it. No doubt, knowing John, he was lifting up believers and pastors from other churches and people that he knew. And I was thinking about this this week, and here comes another principle of practical righteousness for you. How would it be if you lost the right to worship on a Sunday? A right that we so take for granted. And we really do. And when I talk about stuff like this on a Wednesday, I'm totally preaching to the choir because you all are here. But how would it be if we were kept from meeting to worship and fellowship? Did you know in Arizona... Yesterday, did you read this in the news? In Arizona, a a pastor who was holding a small group Bible study in his home, the Arizona police came in, arrested him, and took him to jail. Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Because the laws on the books state that you can't have a church meeting. It's a zoning problem. He violated a zoning law. So did we, right here. I was waiting for him to come pick me up, and they never did. I was like, man... That would have looked good on my resume. (laughs) Spent three days in jail. Why? Because I had church. And they're going through, this pastor and his wife and the small group Bible study that meet in their home are going through the exact same fight right now in Arizona that we went through with Island County when Island County put a cease and desist notice on our doors and said, you can't meet. We said, really? Freedom of religion. Uh, Freedom of assembly. 
RLUPA, which was a law that George Bush put into place. The Religious Land Use and Privatization Act, something like that. And we actually used that. We took it to the county, and the county said, yeah, okay, all right, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll work with you here. And we got our temporary use permits, praise the Lord. Here's a pastor doing the exact same thing that we were doing here, and he sat in jail overnight. And they're fighting it, of course, and, and people are crying that this is a major violation of religious freedom. It has begun, gang, in our country. What if we couldn't meet? What if your free expression to gather and worship on a Sunday, what if our government at some point in the future said, that's done, no one can have Sundays off, it is no longer a holiday, everybody works on Sundays. And you can't go to church. I guarantee people who blow off church right now would start to miss the opportunity. And perhaps we should think about it that way. The privilege that we have. I'm going on and on about this, but gang, here's what we need. Number three, this is the third principle of practical righteousness. We need a consistent pattern. And that consistent pattern is simply this. Be in the Spirit on the Lord's day, just like John. If there's any day of the week that is the most important day for you, not legalistically, not by requirement, but voluntarily, it should be that day. Don't give up meeting with the saints. As the Hebrew writer said, some are in practice of doing. We need each other, and all the more as the day approaches. A consistent pattern. Be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Someone says, well, I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's Day on the golf course. I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day at the lake or on my mountain bike you want to know the best way to know that you're in the spirit on the Lord's day to truly be in the spirit on the Lord's day be with the body of Christ whether it's this body or any other body and I'm not trying to you know, charge for membership here we don't even have membership at the bridge be with the body of Christ gather with other believers Worship, be in the Word, a consistent pattern. Because I guarantee that if we, like John, or other believers across the countries, across the centuries, if we lost our right to worship, we would miss it desperately. 